Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. If you take up your Bibles, we're starting a new series this evening. We're looking at, over the next few evening services, uh, Psalms 42 to 49, which are Psalms of the sons of Korah. Now, we don't know who these uh, sons of Korah were. Perhaps uh, they're in charge of the, the choral music uh, in the temple. Um, but we'll be making our way through them, and uh, in a few Sundays' time, we'll be uh, not only David and I will be preaching, but our two, uh, two of our trainees, Sam uh, and Sam, will be also preaching um, uh, each one of the Psalms as we as we move through. Uh, this evening we're doing Psalms 42 and 43. We're, we're doing them together because uh, they're most likely one. Uh, so I will just read straight through from 42 into 43. You'll see there's similarities as we uh, as we move through. Let's listen and come to God's words. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I'd go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God's. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day... The Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me 
Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen. Most of scripture speaks to us. But the Psalms speak for us. Maybe you've heard those words before. Famous words about the part of the Bible that we're looking at together this evening. Most of Scripture speaks to us. But the Psalms speak for us. The Psalms put in into words so many of the emotions that God's children have always felt down through the centuries. Despair and delight. Anger and adoration. Lament and love, vengeance, and victory. They are all here. And so here this evening, here is the emotional response to God that these two Psalms that we're going to look at together expose for us. What do I do when I feel like God has forgotten me? What do I do when I feel like God has abandoned me? I suspect, friends, that is a far more common emotion than we ever tend to admit to one another. We we pray so often, don't we, for a sense of God's presence and nearness and closeness that it actually takes an unusual amount of courage for one believer to admit to another believer that despite all their praying, they feel absolutely nothing. They hear only silence coming back at them. And they can see no one. It's hard to admit it to to another believer. I, I guess we have all these unwritten rules or assumptions that somehow everybody else around us is vibrantly spiritually alive, aware of God and his presence, while maybe it's just us who isn't. It's hard to admit it to others, but friends, isn't it true? It is also hard to actually admit it to God. To actually say to God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? And so here is a psalm which even as it speaks to us, speaks for us. If you feel abandoned by God and are looking for words to tell him that you feel abandoned, then here are words, friends, this evening that speak for you. Because if you don't yet feel this, one day you might. One day you might feel this if you haven't felt it yet. I remember a couple of years ago after we sang, I think one of those songs that is printed there that we've sang together this evening, somebody somebody said to me, why sing such miserable songs? And of course I had to say, well actually, they're in the Bible. There are Psalms of Lament. Look it up, you can find a famous article online called, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? And we need it, don't we? Because sometimes we are miserable. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, like Will said, are best taken together. It it might be that originally they actually constituted one psalm, but you can see that they work together as a whole, uh, can't we, as we look at them. Notice there are three sections with each section ending with the same refrain. It's a bit like uh, the way that we we sang that uh, beautiful version of it with a chorus 
in the middle of it. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? That, that refrain comes like three times. Verses 6 to 11, the same chorus coming again in verse 11. And then it comes at the end of Psalm 43. So here are Psalms that give to us the anatomy of abandonment. They, they dissect it, they lay it open for us, and yet these psalms keep pointing back to us some rays of light. Verse 5, verse 11, Psalm 43, verse 5. They're the rays of light that we're going to come to. Here is what a forgotten Christian needs to remember. Here is what somebody who feels abandoned needs to come back to. I want us this evening to see three things. I want you to see the language of despair. I want you to see the memory of delight. And I want you to see the hope of delivery. The language of despair, the memory of delight, and the hope of delivery. They're, they're, they're not, we're not going to go through each of the three sections with those points. Rather, we're going to trace those three things through both Psalms together. Number one, the language of despair. There are three D's for the language of despair in these psalms. The psalmist says, I'm dry, I'm drowning, I'm discarded. I'm dry, I'm drowning, I'm discarded. I want you to immerse yourself in that language. It's very hard for us this evening, isn't it, to envisage what it is like to be to be truly parched. We, we have far too much water, don't we, in our land. I doubt, I doubt many of us have ever had the experience of being literally on our knees with thirst at death's door. But in Palestine, of course, the climate is completely different, isn't it? The, the sun is the danger, not the rain. And from May to September, the sun beats down on the land without mercy. It, it bakes the ground until it cracks and it peels. And for living creatures denied water, there is, n- there is nothing closer to torture than that, is there? You've seen those pictures in the David Attenborough films of the herds of wild animals in the savannah leaving the plains and migrating to where there is water. That, that's the image in verse, verse 1, isn't it? A deer that cannot live without water. At the end of itself in despair. That is how the psalmist feels. Like, like the traveler in the desert whose water ran out days ago and who must now drink or die. So is this man. He must have God or die. Over the holidays we watched that uh, film, 127 Hours. You've seen it, some of you. The, the climber in America who gets trapped down a, a ravine, his arm stuck under a boulder. I won't tell you the end of it if you don't know the story but when he at some point in the in what happens to him discovers water oh you can almost feel it yourself the the relief as he gets into his body what he needs this is a man here in psalm 42 and 3 who wants god and who needs god but who cannot get to god and that experience is agony it's not surprising, is it, that in a, uh, that this language of river and stream and fountain and well and springs and showers, not surprising that in a land like this, those thing became, things became images in the Bible applied to God himself. God gives his people water from his river of delights. He is a fountain of life, Psalm 36. What did the Lord Jesus say? The water I give you 
means that you will never thirst again. It will become a spring welling up to eternal life. That's why the psalmist says, verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. For water is a picture of life. Life comes from you, God. All my life comes from you like water comes from the well in the ground. But my life is dry and empty. And there is no life to be found. Do you you see how alone he is? Verse 3. You know, verse 3 actually is is biting irony, isn't it? When you look at it. Ah, yes, he says, actually, do you know what? It's not that I don't have some liquid to hand. I, I can get some liquid. It's not that I haven't felt something crossing my lips and entering my mouth. But it's just my tears streaming down my face. That's all I have to eat and drink. Only my tears. I'm dry, Lord. I'm spiritually parched. Look at the next picture that comes in the second section of the psalm, verse 7. Not just dry. Verse 7, I'm drowning. I'm drowning. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Very few people ever enter a raging waterfall and survive, do they? People who've been to Niagara Falls say that one of the first things you notice as you approach it, you you hear it before you see it, the noise is overwhelming. The sheer roar of the cascading, crashing water. And and this writer says here in verse 7, that's what it's like to be facing this time without you, God. I'm like one of those battered rocks at the bottom of the waterfall, lying buried beneath the torrent. Friends, this evening, I know that some of us know what that feels like. We know what that feels like. Most of us will experience this at some point of life where we, we, we say to God, I am overwhelmed. Lord, I'm, I'm crushed. I'm drowning. I'm suffocating. Sorrow has come over me in waves. I I desperately need something to cling to, to grasp. I need someone to hold on to, someone to pull me up into the clouds where I can breathe again. I'm dry, I'm drowning. Here's the next complaint. Number three, I'm discarded. I'm discarded. I wonder if this one is the worst. This isn't isn't so much an image here in the psalm as, as just plain words that Come from a broken heart. Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Look at verse 2 of Psalm 43. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Do you notice that both of those times, verse 2 and verse 9, the previous Psalm, both times he's used pictures of strength and protection about God, you are a rock, you are a stronghold. And it is those words that make the second half of those verses really hit home. God, you are a rock, but you have not sheltered me. What kind of rock are you? You have forgotten me. What kind of stronghold doesn't actually keep me safe? And so, friends, when you put those three things together, the experience of being dry and drowning and discarded by God, here is the thing that I think bites the most. The taunt of his oppressors has become the cry of his own heart. 
They, they taunt him and mock him, don't they? Verse 10 of Psalm 43, they, they mock him saying, where is your God? The same thing comes back again. Back again in verse 3 of Psalm 42, where is your God? And of course, the reason that that cry feels like mortal agony to him, I think, is because that has become his own question to God. Where are you? They're right, God, aren't they? These people mocking me, they're right. Have you ever felt like that? If there's a God, where is he? Where were you, Lord, on 9-11? Where were you when my child died in my arms, died in my wife's womb? And someone asked you those words, where is God? You, you hear people say that around you. You hear people mocking and asking. And yet as you hear those words, it connects with something deep inside you, your own deep sense of God's absence. So that even as you find your mouth mumbling some kind of acceptable answer to that question, the question pierces your heart and mind because you feel it too. Where are you, God? We're not good at admitting to each other or to God that sometimes we feel like this. D depression sometimes grips some of us, doesn't it, in different forms. And friends, when the sense of the reality of God is lost, the first thing to do is to tell him so. To tell him so. Here's the question. Why is that okay to do that? To say that to God. Why may a believer who truly belongs to Christ, who is held tight in the grip of the Lord Jesus, and who, who knows and loves him, a believer who loves God and his people, why is it possible that they might feel like this and still be a genuine believer? How is it possible? Here's the answer. Because we are children with a heavenly Father whose ways we cannot always see. Isn't that right? We are children with a heavenly Father whose ways we cannot always understand. And asking, where are you? I cannot see you. That, that is what children do. Half an hour before most of you arrived, there were three or four children running around this building. Uh, the consequence of having ministry parents, you're dragged here early. And three or four children running around the building playing hide-and-seek. Two or three times before the service began, I was asked, Have you seen so-and-so? Where are they? And parents have this, don't they? Some form sooner or later in life. Uh, you might remember this or it's coming to you one day. You say goodnight. You think that's your work done for the day. And invariably you'll hear a door creak upstairs and a little voice will say, Are you still there? It's very quiet downstairs. Yes, you say, we're still here. Don't worry, we're here. The door closes. You carry on with your jobs. And a few minutes later, the door will open again. And again, you hear, I can't hear that you're still there. Are you still there? Now, what is going on there when that happens? In a child's mind... And the world has seen through a child's eyes. Isn't it true that if I cannot see you or hear you, maybe you are not there? That's what children think. You might actually be gone unless I can see and hear you. 
And each time we provide reassurance, and in it we are trying to teach our children, aren't we, that they can trust our words, not our noises. That's the thing, isn't it? You can trust my words, not my noises. If if I've said I'm there, I'm there. And I will never tell you otherwise. It takes time, doesn't it, for trust to grow in a child's heart that there is more to life than they can see or hear or touch or feel. It takes time for trust to grow that a spoken word is a guarantee for reality. So it is with God, friends. If a human parent is able to be really, really there, even though they are not seen or heard, how much more so with God? I want us to see some of the ways out of this bottomless ocean for this psalmist. There there are shafts of light here for him and for us. And I, I, I use those words deliberately. They are shafts of light. They're not... It's not light that resolves everything and that ties up all our loose ends, but it is light that we can walk in, enough light for the journey, light that points us forward in the right ways. The language of despair, but number two, the memory of delight. The memory of delight. I want to show you this. The psalmist remembers something here, doesn't he, that brought him delight in the past. And yet, here's the thing. In fact, it is actually some of those things that are in some measure actually the cause of his pain. It's because his memories are of experiences that were so delightful that he's now suffering. Look, he says, verse 4, Psalm 42, verse 4, these things I remember. Here's the agony for him. Because these things I remember as I pour out my soul. Oh, I remember how how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. In other words, he remembers corporate worship. He remembers what it was like to have a temple and to gather with God's people and to lead them in praise. These psalms, the psalms of the sons of Korah, they were uh, the choir directors in the temple. The, the people who put on the beautiful music that we're savoring and in, enjoying today. The, the, the people that made worship possible. And for some reason, it is all gone. He remembers how beautiful it was. His memory here is of the great festivals of Israel's worship. Pilgrim feasts of Passover. The experience of sitting around a table and eating unleavened bread in the spring. Pentecost in high summer. The Feast of Tabernacles in the autumn as the harvest was gathered in. There were all these great feasts that celebrated God's great and mighty deeds in creating the world and in redeeming his people in the world in calling out Israel to be his people, in rescuing them from Egypt. And the psalmist here is homesick with longing to get back to those days. Get back to the place where he and others experienced the presence of God in real, tangible ways. Now, here's the question. How is that a shaft of light? How is verse 4 a shaft of light? For like I said, these memories of delightful things, in fact it is these memories that are his pain. What one commentator has called Psalm 42 the most sadly beautiful psalm in the whole Bible, the whole Psalter. 
the most sadly beautiful psalm in the Psalter. Another commentator writes of Psalm 42 and 43's sweet bitterness. That's what memories of what you have lost are like, aren't they? We, we touch and hold people in our minds because we can no longer touch and hold them in life. We, we relive past events and experiences because of how precious those moments were. And, and the sensation of that memory and what we have lost, the sensation is bittersweet, isn't it? But friends, here is why it is different when what you are remembering is your experience of God's grace and your experience of being with his people. Here's why it is different. Psalm 42, Psalm 43 say to you and me this evening, those things that you think you have lost, they can become your prayer and your hope for what God will do again for you in the future. That's the difference. These things become my prayer and my hope for what God will do for me again in the future. In other words, they become our prayer for what we, got, what we want God to do for us and how we want him to remember us again and not forget us and not leave us drowning. Your prayer takes up in this psalm, the prayer takes up the very things that are causing you pain and lays them out before God and says, God, would you give them back to me again? I'm longing, Lord, for you to give them back to me again. Look at, look at Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Do you see what's happening? Lord, my greatest joy and delight was my, my corporate experience of you in the midst of your people and my personal experience of you night and day by my side. So send forth your light and your truth again so that I may experience them again. One day if you guide me there, I will worship you again in your temple and on your holy mountain. Your light and your truth, those are the two guides I need, Lord. Your light... Not my own light on this situation. Your truth, not my own measure of what is right and wrong. Lord, sometimes I feel like you're not there. But what you have promised about the future is the truth about the future. What you have said will happen in the future will happen. And that is all I need. One day this will lift and your seeming rejection of me will be replaced by being at your altar. In other words, right there in your presence with you again, before your throne and at your side as my joy and delight. You know, friends, when, when the psalmist says these words in Psalm 43, although he doesn't say so explicitly, he has to be remembering, doesn't he, God's great covenant promises to never, ever leave his people in exile. He has to be remembering God's great promises to put his arms around his people again and to gather them and to bring them back to him. There, there would need to be a new exodus, this time from Babylon instead of from Egypt, a new exodus back to the land. There would need to be a new temple. Abandonment and rejection and oppression are not forever and are not permanent, however real and however frightening they seem. 
Today is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. What have we celebrated today but the assurance of God's true and faithful promises? I will not abandon my Holy One to the grave. The Lord Jesus dies and enters the tomb. And what does God do? He sends forth his light and his truth. He raises the king to life again. Friends, everything God has said will happen, will happen. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be an end to sickness and death and disease and sin and sorrow and suffering. One day will be gone forever. We will be in Christ's presence before his throne in the new Jerusalem forever. Because God will have sent forth his light and his truth, his faithful word that promises these things are true and that will guide us and keep us all the way to the end until all of those things become reality. You know, some of you are, uh, you don't have to be old for this. You can be any age. Some of you this evening, I know you have very sweet memories of years past with God's people. Sweet memories of corporate worship. Some of us this evening, you remember a particular church or a particular summer camp or a particular moment, Christian Union maybe, something. You remember moments when all was well with you and with the world and with God. And you would give anything to get back to it if you could somehow. Your faith now seems, seems well, dry, drowning. You feel discarded. And those days of living vibrant faith, they, faith, they seem beyond you somehow. Friends, Psalm 42 and 43 say to you, what you experienced in those moments were not the real thing. They were only a signpost to the real thing. A signpost to what is yet to come. Friends, when we lose the sense of God's presence and his reality, it does not have to mean the end of the road for our walk with Christ. No, what, what it means instead is that we now add into ourselves a greater and deeper and more profound longing for the future that we have yet to experience. L- listen to Charles Spurgeon. The next best thing to living in the light of the Lord's love. Okay, can you think of anything better than living in the light of the Lord's love? The next best thing to living in the light of the Lord's love, Spurgeon says, is to be unhappy until we have it. Does that make sense to you? The next best thing to living in the light of the Lord's love is to be unhappy until you get it. To, to be longing for it so much that nothing else will satisfy. It's, it's why the agonies of verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42, the agonies of Verses 1 and 2 are not the worst agonies that could ever grip your soul. No, the worst condition is to be full and fed and watered and content, but spiritually dead and indifferent to the living God. See what Spurgeon is saying? Oh, this, this agony in Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, this agony, this unhappiness is because more than anything we want God himself. And that longing, that prayer is one that one day will be answered. So thirdly, to finish, and very briefly, I promise, thirdly, the hope of delivery. The language of despair, the memory of delight. 
the hope of delivery. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Just just notice two things the psalmist does here as, as we finish. He asks and he waits. He asks and he waits. All the way through the psalm, he's been asking God questions, hasn't he? When can I do this? Where, where are you? Why have you? And now he shows us that when you feel like that, God is not the only person to ask questions of. He, he asks himself questions as though he were two men, not, not just one. He questions himself. They say, don't they, that talking to yourself is the first sign of madness. But it all depends, doesn't it? It depends. It could be a sign of health. Talking to yourself, friends, is always a sign of spiritual health in the midst of spiritual despair. It's always a sign of spiritual health to ask yourself questions. Somebody has said that to search, to search out the cause of our sorrow is often the best surgery for our grief. Self-ignorance is not bliss. And here's what I think this does. Verse 5, it's there again in verse 11. It's there in verse 5 of chapter of Psalm 43. Here's what I think it does. Taking ourselves in hand like this, interrogating ourselves, is simply a healthy way of saying to ourselves that we should do all we can to tell our emotions they are not the only show in town. That, that's what he's doing. He's speaking to his emotions. Emotions dominate, don't they? Emotions are unstoppable. It's why this language is of waves and billows and breakers. A, a tidal wave of feelings can be unstoppable. And yet sometimes when we stop and turn the spotlight on them and question them, maybe with the help of a friend, we, we, we find ourselves admitting that the emotions are sometimes irrational. Out of all proportion to the situation, maybe the emotions are full of self-pity, even sin. I wonder where you are this evening, friends, with God's word, with these psalms of raw honesty that God has given to us. Do, it, do any of these emotions resonate with you? Are you anxious this evening? Tim, Tim Keller says that anxiety is the result of a crumbling idol. Anxiety is the result of a crumbling idol. Now, I don't want for a minute to suggest that this will apply to everybody in every case, of course. You will know, I know, there are forms of depression that simply do not lift with this kind of self-handling, self-speaking. But when you feel that God has abandoned you or forgotten you, well, that is a time at the very least for asking some questions of yourself because what you feel has, as this psalmist himself recognizes, at very least what you feel has become misaligned with what God himself has said is true. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so the psalmist asks. Secondly, he waits hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Maybe you just need one word this evening from God, and it's that little word in verse 5 again.
again. Three times he says it. I will praise him again. Maybe, friend, not today. Not tomorrow. But again, you will. I can put my hope in you, God. I can wait for you, Lord. Because I know I will yet praise you again. For you have told me it's coming. And so help me to wait. Amen.